0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 129. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode's a sidebar special for Columbus Day 2023. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Also, if you're new to the podcast, sidebar is our term for an episode off the timeline, which I do from time to time when I come across something interesting or in recognition of a holiday, that sort of thing. So it is with this episode, which we are recording on October 8, 2023 in Austin, Texas. It's a revised version of episode 42, considering Columbus counterfactuals, now rewritten in certain respects and re-recorded. Before we get to all of that, I do want to thank the hearty fans who came to the Philadelphia area meetup last Friday evening at Neshaminy Creek Brewing in Croydon, Pennsylvania. Several people drove a couple of hours or more to get there. The conversation was great, as it's been at all of these, and as usual I learned a pile. I'll do more of these when I can carve out time for my travels, hoping to get around to places like Denver and Los Angeles and New York. It's the time of year when historically-minded public intellectuals and content creators dump on Christopher Columbus. That's easy enough to do, in that Columbus was an unattractive personality He was wrong about many things and had a great capacity to alienate people. He was an incompetent colonial administrator, even by the standards of such people and he introduced Iberian-style slavery into the New World. In recent years, his star has fallen so far that there's been a push to obliterate any recognition of him and to reframe Columbus Day as Indigenous People's Day, as if to erase his legacy entirely. I myself am no booster of Columbus Day in the United States, at least, because our national connection to his legacy is attenuated. However, neither am I much for the timing of Indigenous Peoples' Day as a response, whatever the merits of such a day in the abstract. By using Indigenous Peoples' Day to interdict Columbus Day, we have turned it into another divisive culture-war moment, the result being that our celebration of Indigenous Peoples is a reflection of or reaction to Columbus, rather than an educational and celebratory moment in and of itself. That's a loss, it seems to me, and another product of the recent compulsion to turn everything historical into useful political narrative. Long-standing listeners know how I feel about that. The purpose of this episode is to speculate about what the world would have looked like if the Columbus story had unfolded differently in various ways. Some of my speculations are outrageous and might irritate you ask only that you keep an open mind. Devoted listeners with memory yet green will remember the celebrated moment from the third of our five episodes on Columbus, Admiral of the Ocean Sea Part 3, which dropped in the earliest days of the podcast back on January 22nd, 2021. Quoting me, mostly quoting Columbus's most celebrated biographer, the famous naval historian Samuel Eliot Morrison. The night of October 11, 1492, was, in Morrison's words, the most momentous ever experienced aboard any ship in any sea. Quote, Jupiter was rising in the east, Saturn had just set, and Deneb was nearing the western horizon toward which all waking eyes were directed. There hung the square of Pegasus, and a little higher into the northward Cassiopeia's chair. The guards of Polaris, at 15 degrees beyond feet, told the pilots that it was two hours after midnight. On speed, the three ships, Pinta in the lead, their sails silver in the moonlight. A brave trade wind is blowing and the caravels are rolling plunging and throwing spray as they cut down the last invisible barrier between the old world and the new. Only a few minutes now, and an era that began in remotest antiquity will end. Rodrigo de Triana, looking on Pinta's forecastle, sees something like a white sand cliff gleaming in the moonlight on the western horizon. Then another, and a dark line of land connecting them. Tierra, Tierra, he shouts. And this time, land it is. Back to me. The expedition had first seen what is now known as San Salvador, or Watling's Island of the Bahamas, and what was known then to its inhabitants as Guanahani. From that moment on, everything, everywhere in the world, would be different. One of the great things about not being a professional historian is that I get to do and say things that academics are usually reluctant to do and say. Discussions of counterfactuals, what might have been, fall into that category. My own view, however, is that in looking at something as momentous as the connecting of the two hemispheres, we can learn something by proposing counterfactuals and kicking them around. I'll kick this off by offering a few assumptions about Columbus and his accomplishment, whatever it was, for the purposes of this discussion. Most of these are very close to irrefutable, and very long-standing listeners will remember most of them from our series on the Admiral of the Ocean Sea. Columbus brought an entrepreneur's insight and determination to the problem of breaking the Muslim monopoly on trade between Europe and Asia. He had the thought to sail west in search of China and Japan, or perhaps still undiscovered islands in the Ocean Sea. This was not original or surprising, insofar as everybody knew that Japan and China were to the west of Europe. However, previous attempts to push west from the most obvious place, the Azores, had failed— because strong westerlies blow down on those islands, and beating against those winds in a caravel was a fool's errand. Columbus's insight was to sail out of the recently conquered Canaries, where he had seen that the prevailing wind blows from the east. With that edge and an erroneous and even foolish confidence that the world was much smaller than it was... Columbus doggedly pursued funding for his great enterprise over many years, until Isabella finally decided to make a low-risk bet that she probably did not expect to pan out. In his unique insight, sometimes grating personality, and erroneous overconfidence, Columbus was a disruptive innovator of the first order, a personality type that students of business history would instantly recognize. Columbus was an extremely capable sailor, an intuitive navigator, able to make judgments at sea that no person alive today could do with only the tools available in 1492. He proved this time and again, including his critical decision in the first voyage to follow the birds and the choices he made during the dangerous voyage home. The voyage home, after all, was just as important as the Western crossing, because if Columbus had not gotten back to Europe, nobody would have heard what he had found, and his trip would have been even less relevant to history than the early Scandinavian settlement in North America. As capable as he was as a sailor, and determined as he was as a visionary, Columbus failed to find rich Asian civilizations with whom to trade. To prove the value of his trip and get funding for a second voyage, he kidnapped Indians to take home as proof of all that he had found. To save the financial viability of his great enterprise, he enslaved Indians to extract alluvial gold on Hispaniola. Columbus was therefore the first person to impose the grinding system of Spanish settlement and exploitation in the New World. In doing this, He was extending brutal practices that the Spanish had deployed during their conquest of the Canary Islands. There, they had subjugated the indigenous people, the guanches, and enslaved them to work on Spanish plantations. Columbus did not therefore merely participate in an existing system that he was born into. Columbus was not the scion of a plantation slaveholder trapped in a role assigned to him at birth. Rather, he was instrumental to converting the singular experience of the Canaries into the playbook for Spanish settlement in the Western Hemisphere and beyond. Finally, Columbus was essential to the history of the Americans because but for Columbus, the whole history of North America would have unfolded very differently. Yet he was not actually of the history of the Americans. He never reached today's United States, other than to touch Puerto Rico. Many Spaniards were far more important to our national story than Columbus. Adding all of this up, I have no objection to those who say that we Americans shouldn't honor Columbus the man. Celebrate Columbus the man or not, but it is an entirely different matter to consider Columbus's legacy, by which I mean the consequences of Columbus's actions. Few people in all history have had such a profound effect on humanity and human civilization. And here's the part that will irritate people. Though countless millions of people, perhaps more than a hundred million, suffered grievously because of Columbus's legacy, even more people, probably billions, benefited from it. Let's roll back to our first episode on Columbus and the state of the world in early 1492. Quoting myself again. To understand the extraordinary story of Columbus and the consequences of contact between the eastern and western hemispheres, it makes sense to take a moment and consider the world as it was before. There were 400 to 500 million humans on the entire planet, of which the western hemisphere accounted for perhaps 75 million souls, and the entire continent of Europe only about 60 million In North America, estimates vary from 2 million to 18 million, so the balance of the population of the Western Hemisphere lived in the much more densely populated part south of the Rio Grande. These numbers, as vague as they are, if anything overstate the precision with which we actually know the population of the Americas in 1491. For an excellent overview of the academic debate between the high counters and the low counters, See Charles Mann's now famous book, 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. Or if you listen to the first two episodes of the History of the Americas podcast, you've already had a taste of the debate. Europe in the late Middle Ages was not at its best. The continent was only just past its calamitous 14th century in which plague, endless war, Brigandage and papal schism consigned Europeans to death, misery, poverty, and hell. The population was, in 1492, only just recovering the level of 1,300. Samuel Eliot Morrison begins his biography of Columbus, published in 1942, with this bleak assessment. Quote, at the end of the year 1492, most men in Western Europe felt exceedingly gloomy about the future. Christian civilization appeared to be shrinking in area and dividing into hostile units as its sphere contracted. For over a century, there'd been no important advance in natural science, and registration in the universities dwindled as the instruction they offered became increasingly jejune and lifeless. Institutions were decaying. Well-meaning people were growing cynical or desperate, and many intelligent men, for want of something better to do, were endeavoring to escape the present through studying the pagan past. With the practical dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire and the Church's loss of moral leadership, Christians had nothing to which they might cling. The great principle of unity, represented by emperor and pope, was a dream of the past that had not come true. Belief in the institutions of their ancestors was wavering. It seemed as if the devil had adopted as his own the principle divide and rule. Throughout Western Europe, the general feeling was one of profound disillusion, cynical pessimism, and black despair. One may catch the prevailing mood by reading the final pages of the Nuremberg Chronicle. The colophon of this stately old folio, dated July 12, 1493, declares that it contains the events most worthy of notice from the beginning of the world to the calamity of our time. Interjection, I actually saw a copy of the Nuremberg Chronicle in a museum in Krakow, Poland, a couple of weeks ago. Sadly, it was under glass, so I couldn't flip to the end to read the colophon, which is just as well since I can't read medieval German. Back to Morrison. Yet even as the chroniclers of Nuremberg were correcting their proofs, a Spanish caravel named Niña scudded before a winter gale into Lisbon with news of a discovery that was to give old Europe another chance. In a few years, we find the mental picture completely changed. Strong monarchs are stamping out privy conspiracy and rebellion. The church, purged and chastened by the Protestant Reformation, puts her house in order. New ideas flare up throughout Italy, France, Germany, and the northern nations. Faith in God revives, and the human spirit is renewed. The change is complete and astounding. Back to me. The question is, why was the change complete and astounding, and how far did it go? In order to... Get to those questions. I propose a few working assumptions that I believe to be true, or truer than the alternatives. First, the overarching consequence of Columbus, dwarfing everything else that might be said, is the Columbian Exchange, which is, per Wikipedia, the widespread transfer of plants, animals, precious metals, commodities, culture, human populations. Technologies, diseases, and ideas between the New World, the Americas, in the Western Hemisphere, and the Old World, Afro Eurasia, in the Eastern Hemisphere, in the late 15th and following centuries. For a lot more detail on that topic at a high level and discussion of the impact it had on both human population and on the old fashioned cocktail you might make for yourself this evening, you might listen or listen again to one of our early episodes, Introduction to the Columbian Exchange. Second, Columbus's first voyage, impressive a feat of seamanship that it was, would have been of virtually no consequence if there'd been no second voyage. He would have been as inconsequential as the settlement or settlements in Canada by the Vikings, visitors perhaps encountered by indigenous peoples, but ephemeral and of trivial long-term consequence. We do not speak of the Viking exchange because there wasn't one. Had there been no second voyage, we would not speak of the Columbian exchange or have built statues of Columbus. It was the second voyage involving 17 ships and 1,200 or more men that put the Spanish into the Western Hemisphere for good. And that is the basis for celebrating or vilifying what Columbus did. That leads to the first big question, how was it that Columbus was able to persuade the dual sovereigns, Isabella and Ferdinand, to underwrite the second voyage? The primary reason was the obsession with the yellow metal that has time and again changed the world. Columbus had seen enough gold and brought back a few bits of jewelry and such made of it that he was able to believe that there must be much more still to be mined. In fact, Hispaniola had only small deposits of alluvial gold, flecks and nuggets to be panned from streams and sifted from soil. But gold there was. The prospect of recovering it for Spain justified the big fleet sent on the second voyage. The secondary reason, which those of you who listened to our five episodes on Columbus will remember, was that the Santa Maria had run aground off Hispaniola. Columbus could not squeeze all of her sailors on the Niña. The Penta had gone AWOL on a frolic and detour searching for more gold, which it did not find. So he left most of the Santa Maria's crew on Hispaniola to form the doomed settlement of La Navidad. Columbus clearly felt a moral obligation to return there to recover them or resupply them. But even if he had worked out the funding for a rescue operation, he probably wouldn't have been able to justify the huge fleet of the second voyage just to fulfill that obligation. Two small ships would have sufficed. So it took the shipwreck to bring Columbus or any other Spaniard back to the New World, and the discovery of gold to bring back a lot of Spaniards. The thing is, the evidence of gold... A little jewelry on some of the tribal leaders and a chief's daughter, spotted almost by chance, was scant. He might never have seen it at all, and in fact there was very little of it on Hispaniola. While Columbus has been called one of the great real estate promoters of all time, insofar as he sold Isabella and Ferdinand on the second voyage on the basis of very little, he could not have lied about the sighting of gold— His rivals on the expedition would have denounced him. So if he and his men had not seen and traded for the small pile of decorative gold they brought home, the settlement of the new world might have been put off for a long time, and it might not have been the Spanish to do it. Sometimes a simple gold ring or necklace can change the world, at least if it's seen by the right promoter. But what if Columbus had not sailed on behalf of Spain? Longstanding listeners will recall that in early 1492, Isabella and Ferdinand turned down Columbus, supposedly once and for all. He had saddled his donkey, packed up his few things, and set off for France, where his brother Bartholomew was trying to persuade the king to underwrite the great enterprise. Isabella only reversed herself, called Columbus back, and bought the deal— because one of Ferdinand's advisors argued that the cost of the expedition was so low that they really ought not run even the small risk that Columbus would be right and would succeed on behalf of another monarch. Since Portugal was now bent on pursuing a route to Asia around Africa, the alternative investors were Henry VII of England and Charles VIII of France. Of the two, Henry VII was more interested in exploration. As soon as 1497, he would commission another Italian navigator, John Cabot, to look for unclaimed lands to the west and perhaps a northwest passage to Asia. So Henry was open to exploration far more than his son Henry VIII would be. But England was a poor country at the end of the 15th century. Perhaps Henry turned Columbus down only to fund Cabot later because he was more risk-averse than Isabella. But what if he had taken the deal? What if Columbus had sailed on behalf of England with an English crew following the westerlies blowing out of the Canaries and arrived at the same place? Well, for starters, he might not have been so quick to propose enslaving Indians. In 1492, the only such markets in Western Europe were in Spain and Portugal and in commercial interaction with Arabs and other North Africans. In the conquering of the Canaries, The Spanish had already built a plantation economy on the backs of enslaved indigenous peoples. The Iberians had a demonstrated use for slaves. The English of the late Middle Ages had no slave markets, no experience trafficking in people, and no experience managing an economy based on slavery. That would change eventually as the English fell into competition with Spain and Portugal for a piece of the vast wealth of the Americas. It's nevertheless reasonable to wonder whether the politically savvy Columbus, on an English ship with an English crew, would have proposed the same economic model if he were working for Henry VII. European-style slavery would have almost certainly come to the New World eventually, but it still might not have been Columbus who would first do it. Here's another counterfactual question. What if the first sustained contact between the Western and Eastern hemispheres had been initiated by somebody who was not European at all? Jill Lepore raises the possibility in the early pages of her book, These Truths. Quote, To start with, weighing the evidence, it's a little surprising that it was Western Europeans in 1492 and not some other group of people some other year who crossed an ocean to discover a lost world. Making the journey required knowledge, capacity, and interest. The Maya, whose territories stretch from what is now Mexico to Costa Rica, knew enough astronomy to navigate across the ocean as early as AD 300. They did not, however, have seaworthy boats. The ancient Greeks had known a great deal about cartography. Claudius Ptolemy, an astronomer who lived in the second century, had devised a way to project the surface of the globe into a flat surface with near perfect proportions. But medieval Christians, having dismissed the writings of the ancient Greeks as pagan, had lost much of that knowledge. The Chinese had invented the compass in the 11th century and had excellent boats. Before his death in 1433, Zheng He, a Chinese Muslim, had explored the coast of much of Asia and Eastern Africa, leading 200 ships and 27,000 sailors. But China was the richest country in the world, and by the late 15th century, no longer allowed travel beyond the Indian Ocean, and the theory that the rest of the world was unworthy and uninteresting. West Africans navigated the coastline and rivers that led into a vast inland trade network, but prevailing winds and currents thwarted them from navigating north, and they seldom ventured into the ocean. Muslims from North Africa and the Middle East, who had never cast aside the knowledge of antiquity and the calculations of Ptolemy, made accurate maps and built sturdy boats. But because they dominated trade in the Mediterranean Sea— as well as overland trade with Africa for gold and with Asia for spices, they didn't have much reason to venture farther. It was somewhat out of desperation then that the poorest and weakest Christian monarchs on the very western edge of Europe, fighting with Muslims, jealous of the Islamic world's monopoly on trade, and keen to spread their religion, began looking for routes to Africa and Asia that wouldn't require sailing across the Mediterranean. Back to me. Both the Chinese and the Arab Muslims had the technology to do what Columbus had done. But for the twists and turns of court politics in China and the entrenched and profitable economic status quo in the Muslim world, it isn't at all obvious or inevitable that the Europeans would get to the Western Hemisphere first. Let's suppose the Chinese and the Arabs arrived at and stayed in the Western Hemisphere first. What would have happened? Well, the Chinese and the Arabs would have carried more or less the same Eastern Hemisphere pathogens to the Spanish. And the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere would have had very little resistance to them. The civilizations of the Western Hemisphere were doomed, no matter who from the Eastern Hemisphere made the first sustained connection. Scholars debate whether disease killed 80% of the Indians or 95% in the first 150 years after Columbus. But in either case, their civilizations would have died. It's also hard to imagine that the Chinese, the Arabs, both of whom had more substantial traditions of slavery than Western Europeans, wouldn't have enslaved surviving Indians to dig, say, the vast silver deposits of Bolivia if they'd found them first. Nor is it clear that the Arabs wouldn't have imported blacks from Africa and whom they were already doing a robust trade to replace the Indians who died on the plantations and in the mines. Now, I don't think it is obvious that a Western hemisphere dominated by the descendants of Chinese or Arab conquerors would have resulted in an uglier world than one dominated by the Spanish, Portuguese, and English. We can't simply assume that China or the Arab Muslim world would have developed in the same way in that alt-history because European power, which is massively increased by virtue of the exploitation of the Western hemisphere, has had such a huge impact on the development of both China and the Arab world. However, neither is it obvious that the world would be better off today if the Western Hemisphere were Chinese or Arab. No doubt many Chinese or Arabs would think so. Cultural familiarity always appeals to people but it was the English settlers in the United States and their descendants who fundamentally implemented individualism as a national ideal and wrote their names in blood to defend it not once but several times. If you are an individualist and believe you possess inalienable rights, and by now it will not surprise you to hear that I am and do, you might ask how that individualism would have influenced the world as it did, if England had remained an impoverished island in a corner of the world, and the Chinese or the Arabs had controlled the Western Hemisphere. Now here's the really hot counterfactual. The Columbian Exchange drove an explosion in human population, even taking into account the deaths of perhaps 100 million indigenous people and tens of millions of enslaved black Africans and their descendants plus millions more in the Eastern Hemisphere from syphilis. The population exploded after 1500 because a whole host of really important crops grew better in the opposite hemisphere. We discussed this topic at length in our episode, Introduction to the Columbian Exchange. So I'll send you there for the deep dive. Suffice it to say that Indian agronomists bred maize, cassava, potatoes, capsicum peppers, sweet potatoes, beans, squash, cacao, vanilla, and last but far from least, tomatoes, with a creativity, and it should be said genius, that matched or exceeded similar efforts in the Eastern hemisphere. Maize and cassava today account for the majority of the calories available to people in many African countries. Tomatoes, bred in Mexico from an inedible plant from the Amazon, are so ubiquitous that one study calculated that they contribute more aggregate nutrients to the human diet than any other plant. Potatoes say no more. Okay, I will. One study calculated that the New World potato contributed more human population growth to European cities than any other crop. Certain old-world crops, including sugarcane, coffee, citrus, and bananas, thrived in the New World, and thereby became affordable for the rising middle classes all over the world. There are a bunch of reasons why crops in one hemisphere often grow more robustly in the other. In short, they were able to evade the native pests who had evolved to constrain them, and often benefited from soils and climate that promoted growth. All these consequences of the Columbian Exchange allowed for a surge of human population that would not have been possible otherwise. Here's some math from that episode. Quote, on the super cool website, ourworldindata.org, one can find a graph of obviously estimated human population from 10,000 BC to the projected population in 2100. Per the weirdly precise figures on that site, which apart from their faux precision look pretty plausible, from Common Era Year Zero to 1500, the world's population grew from 188.24 million people to 461.37 million. The Our World and Data people seem to be low counters regarding the Western Hemisphere population. That is a compound annual growth rate of just under six hundredths of a percent. By contrast, from 1500 to 1800, the period after Columbus, but before the confounding influences of the Industrial Revolution, mechanization of food production and big improvements in public health, the world population grew from that 461.37 million people in 1,500 to 989.82 million, or a compound annual growth rate of 0.25%. That's obviously more than quadruple the rate that prevailed during the entire run from the birth of Christ to 1,500. And of course, the quadruple growth rate is in spite of a catastrophic early setback, the demographic disaster in the Western Hemisphere after Old World diseases killed off 80% or more of the native population, the transfer of 12 million Africans in the Middle Passage, and all those deaths from syphilis. 1492 was, it turns out, an inflection point, the first curve in the hockey stick of human population growth. A location of population also changed radically. In 1492, the world's biggest cities clustered in the tropics, all but one within 30 degrees of the equator. They were Beijing, Vijayanagar in southern India, Cairo, Hangzhou, and Nanjing in China, Tabriz in Iran, Gaur in India, Tenochtitlan, capital of the Aztec empire, Istanbul, and perhaps Gao and the Songhai Empire in West Africa, and Cusco, capital of the Inca Empire. By 1900, every city in the top ten would be in Europe and the United States, except Tokyo, in Charles Mann's words, the most westernized of eastern cities. If one imagines that Pangaea remained intact with most of the world's land in one mass— it's hard to believe that the human carrying capacity of the planet would be much more than 2 or 3 billion souls, far below the nearly 8 billion who live here today. There simply would not have been enough food to feed the people, and the loss of all that human ingenuity would have almost certainly delayed or even prevented the unbelievable pace of technology and innovation that has happened since and enabled so much agricultural and industrial productivity. Of course, there are plenty of people today who wish there were far fewer people. They usually mean other people, assuming they themselves would be here to enjoy the fruits of a quieter, cleaner, simpler, more paradisical world. Maybe they are right. Before one leaps to that answer, though, consider the lives those tens of billions of additional people have been able to lead. The joy and the sadness and the loving families that they had and the contributions of their civilizations to technology, art, music, religion, literature, and human opportunity. None of that would have been possible if there had been no connection between the hemispheres or if there had been no separate Western hemisphere at all. The world needed the Columbian exchange to become what it is today. A lot of people died in the making of our world, and a great many more have lived because of it. None of this is to excuse the brutality and genocide along the way. And as the years went by, there were moments when the violence would be gratuitous, adding nothing to today's world. And surely, one of the great paradoxes is that all that violence against weaker peoples, especially in the Americas and Africa, enabled our modern world in which we have the material comfort and moral development to care about individual suffering far away from our own homes. That, that is the long-term consequence of Columbus's great enterprise, as he himself put it. Much of it seemingly lost in the shallow discussion of that legacy today. Thank you again for listening. I hope that this has been thought-provoking. I skewered some conventional wisdom in this episode. Many of you who listen this far are probably itching to disagree or erupt in outrage. As usual, please send me questions, comments, corrections, objections, and pats on the back, as civilly as you can in all cases, by email to thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or comment on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. I'll respond to all thoughtful objections and issue corrections as appropriate. Until next time.